This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 511 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. 
And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 383 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chief Rob Fisher. Now, before I start this intro, I also want to say happy anniversary to Rob and his wife, Jody. Jody was kind enough to let me steal Rob from her for a couple of hours to do this interview on their wedding anniversary, so thank you. And another aside from that is today is also the fourth anniversary of the Behind the Shield podcast, and that is due to you, the audience. So when I talk about leaving a rating, leaving feedback that I get to read on iTunes or whatever app that you listen to this on, you are responsible for the growth. I started this four years ago, and here we are now, almost 1.4 million downloads with almost 400 incredible guests. So I want to thank you, and every single time that you just take a moment to rate the show, share the show, it truly does organically make this grow and gets these incredible men and women to the people that need to hear them. So in this interview with Chief Fisher, we discuss a host of topics from mental health to joining the fools, firefighter fitness, learning from line of duty deaths, and so many other areas. So without further ado, I introduce to you Chief Rob Fisher. Enjoy. So, Rob, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me on. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation. We've uh, talked a few times before about possibly coming on. And, you know, the anticipation got to a point where what's finally going to happen. And we're here. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for being patient. I, I have a, I have a monkey mind. So, you know, I'll say, hey, we've got to do a podcast. And then, you know, my mind will go off to space. But secondly, there's an organic element to when these seem to manifest and you know it was like i know we were at rosecrans together well, a year ago now um but uh you know this this suddenly popped into my head and i'm like okay this is this is obviously the time so i'm very very excited to do this so where on planet earth are we finding you today well i'm in my office right now um i my wife and i live in downtown seattle uh not near the riots or any of the other political crap that's going on but um, I'm in my office and at home and um, just came off a shift this morning. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, because obviously you are neighboring, not wanting to get political in any way, shape or form, but just from an operational point of view, from a safety of your men and women's point of view, what are some of the, the challenges that you've seen the last few months with the COVID and with the, the unrest? Well, wow, that's that's a huge question. We could talk about that for an hour at least. Um, I I will first of all. Um, I don't work for the Seattle Fire Department. I work for a, a suburban department about 25, 30 miles north uh, of Seattle. But I got a lot of friends that work for Seattle Fire, and I'll I'll say for them, it's been a very big challenge. Um, not getting all the political side of things, but. The city of Seattle, the the council here has made their job that much more challenging as well as the PD, Seattle PD. But um, I think that uh, for them, uh, it has been um, a tremendous stress on them. It's been uh, challenging in the sense of uh, the violence that's gone on and has it been allowed to been go on. 
So it's made, obviously, for them when they come back, um, a, a real difficult transition from work and uh, family life, uh, which I know is extremely important and something you talk a lot about. But um, the just the how different we've gone from in the fire service and our normal calls, medic responses and BLS responses and, you know, rubbish fires and structure fires. Those are what we, you know, some may see that are not in the fire services uh, challenging, but in reality for us that have been trained and enjoy doing the job, those are not as challenging as dealing with the unrest that's going on because that is truly the unknown. As for COVID, um, we, now in my department, I'm not dealing with any unrest, but as for COVID, uh, it's challenging in that, um, it is the unknown. So anytime that, uh, as human beings don't do really well with the unknown, uh, it creates a high level of stress. So, uh, we've been dealing with this since, um, uh, well in Washington it, where it all started, uh, we've been dealing with this since about February. And, uh, I think we made significant changes at the first part of March, um, but uh, there is a stress to the men and women um, in the fire department, in my fire department, because um, not only the unknown, and now we've got to the point where dealing with COVID, we have a better understanding, but it's just like the disconnect of, of um, human connection. You know, the, that has been a huge stress. And um, I'm also the peer support instructor for, or I'm sorry, the peer support coordinator for my department and you can see the stress and we talked to some of the individuals and just losing the ability to have just a, a general conversation one-on-one without having to wear a mask, um, living our lives through uh, video conferencing and zooming and everything. Um, we've lost that human connection and that has been a lot of stress. As for the call, um, I don't see it any, you know, any more significant than when we were dealing with uh, significant trauma and we're gowned up and wearing masks and everything. It's no different. We just do it more often. And I think the public has become uh, accustomed to it. So we're no longer trying to explain why we look like we're, you know, decked out for some horrific thing when they're only calling because they fell down. So, but yeah, that's how things have been going in my neck of the woods. Brilliant. Well, it's going to break that down a little bit. Firstly, on the COVID side, I, again, not politicizing my whole focus. The whole reason I started this podcast is because of wellness. So that is the fundamental focus for me. But I've noticed it started off with deaths. And then there was this very like subtle shift to cases versus deaths, not downplaying a single person that we've lost. But what are you guys seeing from the operational level as far as actual you know, um, severe impact, like, you know, ERs being overrun, you know, patients being on the brink of death when you're, when you're responding to them. Are you seeing that side of it or is it more just a matter of many poor, excuse me, many more people are showing up on tests as having it now? Well, one, I, I mean, as a battalion chief, I don't have to go to the hospital on the transports and, but I do, you know, we do see, um, we are seeing a number of people that have been exposed, think they have been exposed or um, actually have um, been exposed and have COVID. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think that we've had the hospitals in the sense of what you've seen on the news uh, completely overrun. I know that they're busy 
when you have like we've had a few of our individuals um, become exposed and, and, and have had been taken offline in quarantine for a period of time. And that just adds stress to the system. And the same thing is happening in the hospitals. So there's a stress on the hospital. So, um, you know, there's individuals that because of their age, they've elected not to continue on in that profession. And so we've seen a reduction, I think, in the number of people that are available to help. And um, so the main hospitals we're dealing with, um, there is stress on them, but not to the level that I think that we've seen in the news. As for um, uh, deaths related to, um, I couldn't speak to that, um, but I do know we have a facility in my first due area that is the COVID place for the homeless uh, for the county that I work in. And um, so we've gone there a number of times for uh, individuals that are positive COVID and um, are dealing with some of the symptoms of it. And we take them to the hospital and, and, um, and that, that's about it. We have really good protocol for once we handle these patients and deconning the rig uh, and getting back into service. So I don't think there's any concern there, but um, on that, you know, the, I would say the one thing that has changed um, in the fire department for us is a turnaround for a, a normal call for like a chest pain was about an hour and a half from where we are to um, one of the main hospitals. So if somebody was having a, a significant incident and then, you know, you just add on another 45 minutes to an hour now with COVID because we have the decon procedure. We have to doff all of our clothes and get into Tyvek suits. We have to shower, wash our clothes, decon the rig when we get back, and then put the rig back in service. So, you know, that has kind of changed on our end for our normal operations. But as for the hospitals, I couldn't really speak to that as much as, you know, the guys that have been, guys and gals that have been transporting there. But um, I know that we haven't had any significant, like, you can't take them to this hospital because there's no room for them. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. Like I said, I'm never, ever loading the question. I purely am just curious. But the more people on the ground, the more responders I hear, you know, the more I get that that feedback. Of course, people are concerned. Of course, people that, you know, for whatever reason, their immune system's compromised. They're one of these anomalies where, you know, there's a genetic compromise, whatever it is. You know, there's that significant element, but you know, there are a lot of people that are getting it, that are exposed, that are asymptomatic, that recover quickly. Two, two of the guys from Anaheim that I have had severe onset. One was intubated and one, you know, was in the hospital for, for quite a long time, you know, but, but there's, you know, there's still an, an underlying element to that of being a responder and being sleep deprived for 10, 20 years. But, um, you know, I, I, I love hearing, you know, an unsolicited, um, picture being painted so that we can start putting a collage of what people are actually seeing on the ground and to separate New York City at the beginning with the rest of the 50 states and what most people are seeing to try and try and take away some of that panic and start steering us back to you know what should be normality I mean a positive normality you know where we're working more on prevention and things but getting our responders back to a state where they can respond efficiently rather than as you said a very very inefficient response or inefficient yeah I, we have firefighters that are married to nurses and and um, so conversation wise uh, with them they you know they've said yeah they're they're overworked and and they're struggling to 
because they're, you know, imagine just your basic patient. Now you're dealing with the potential for COVID or there is a COVID patient on that same floor, which I would assume the hospitals have now changed. So they have a, a COVID floor. So, but the amount of work that has to go into just the regular patient now with the concern of COVID, be it that they have it or not, is just added way more stress and added way more work onto a job that was already stressful. So, um, I don't, you know, I don't think we need to have like the New York where you've got, uh, ventilator, there's no ventilators and you got people in line and all this stuff. I don't think we need that, um, to say that there's, there is a, a significant problem in the hospital and in, in dealing with this and that they're stressed and that they're o- overworked. Just, just the change of their job as it relate, as it relates to their normal call. Now that they're dealing with COVID causes enough, uh, stress and, and wear and tear on, on the nurses and doctors that are working in the hospital. Absolutely. And what's, what's baffling as well is that, you know, we get this response, we get, um, more facilities being built, then we're told they can't even staff them. And then you get stories like the EMTs in New York, where now they're cutting them. So, you know, again, it's mixed message. Like, well, if, are we in the middle of an absolute disaster, in which case it's all hands on deck? Well, then why are you cutting these people at the same time? You know, so I, I love to hear kind of each person's perspective. Now, from, Another area that I've heard a lot, and again, I'll make it open-ended. Have you seen any sort of increase in addiction, overdose, child abuse, domestic violence, the kind of isolation-related symptoms that some departments are seeing? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I really I really don't think it has changed um, where I work uh, related to the types of patients that we're seeing. Um, I, I think the ones that are hit the hardest are those that are the lower income or the homeless uh, for whatever reason they're homeless, but they're the ones that seem to be hit the most. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that we've seen an increase in, in violence, um, as a relation as related to that. Um, uh, as for our, the firefighters, um, uh, you know, we try to keep in touch with them the best we can. And, and, you know, we got a, a number of, individuals where, you know, we keep in touch with a little bit more. Um, but I don't think it has changed. I mean, some of the problems that we were dealing with and with, uh, uh, addiction or just, you know, dealing with behavioral health issues, uh, were the same before we, we got into COVID and, and maybe things will change when we come to the end of this year and we will find out more. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily, from my perspective, from where I'm at, I'm not necessarily seeing anything. Okay. Well, that's good. That's very, very good. Um, so one last thing, just kind of dissecting your specific area at the moment before we get into your own personal journey into the fire service. What are the anecdotes you're hearing from Seattle as far as the safety of the responders? Obviously, you know, there's, there's a very anti-law enforcement sentiment, sentiment, uh, sentiment, excuse me, um, amongst some pockets of people. Again, that's, I think that's being painted like everyone, which I think is completely wrong. But, you know, it, I'm assuming it's making it more dangerous for the medics and the firefighters too. So, um, you know, what are some of the stories or precautions that they're taking in your neighboring department? Um, well, I don't remember the exact period of time. Uh, one of my really close buddies, Brian Root, works up at uh, the station that's in the Capitol Hill area where a lot of the protests were going on. Um, in fact, it was where they took over the East precinct, um, is literally a, a block or two away from their fire station. And while all that was going on, they had been moved out of their fire station, um, multiple times, uh, literally just like 
pack up and we're going to move you guys to another station. Um, I wouldn't say abandon the station like some people saw the police department doing to the East Precinct, but just the precaution it would just be safer for the firefighters to go somewhere else. And, um, and typically, and, and you probably know as your experience as a firefighter, typically when we go to um, calls of violence or issues like this, there's a difference between police and fire. And um, we don't get as much crap from, from the group as the police officers do. Well, in this case, it really didn't seem to matter. And so, um, so, um, moving the firefighters out of their stations was probably the best thing, you know, for that time, for the way that the crowd was acting best things to do. Now, again, I I don't work for the Seattle fire department. So my perspective is from the outside, from talking to a couple other individuals, but I do know that they ended up getting, um, they ended up buying a bunch of, you know, basically like riot gear, um, where they're wearing, uh, their vests and, and helmets and everything so that they are protected. And that's just, you know, when I came into the fire service, that wasn't an issue. We would go on domestic violence calls without police. And, um, that changed in, in the nineties for us. And now we're in an age where firefighters are wearing, um, bulletproof vests and, and, uh, and helmets and, and doing the same things almost like police officers are. So I know that has happened, but, uh, things have calmed down around here. And, and I think they're, we're getting back to some relative, you know, kind of normalcy, uh, in operations for the Seattle fire department. Beautiful. 2020, the year that you're afraid to even use the word normal in case you were misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then you mentioned about, you know, the 90s. So let's start at the very beginning. Then I'd love to talk about your kind of early family dynamic and then walk through your journey in the fire service. So where were you born? And then tell me about your, your family. What do your mom and dad do and how many siblings? I was born in uh, Seattle, Washington in the late 60s. And uh, my dad, um, it's kind of funny. My dad was kicked out of uh, the, the state of Minnesota um, he had a rough upbringing, uh, difficult childhood, and um, uh, literally the the judge said, look, we're tired of dealing with you, so you're either going to go to the military or you're going to go live somewhere else and cause problems somewhere else. So my uh, dad moved uh, west to Seattle area to be with his uh, aunt or great aunt. Actually, it was aunt. And um, how he met my mom, yeah, I'm not, I still don't even know it today, and when my grandparents were alive, uh, they couldn't explain it. Um, my mom was a military um, daughter, a family of, um, I got to go through all my uncles, family of five, and um, raised Catholic. And um, my dad was not raised Catholic. And so how they met, I'm not sure. They had me. And then I've got three brothers, younger brothers. So I'm the oldest of four. Uh, my dad was essentially did any type of work that he could and um, ultimately became a kind of like short haul truck driver down here in Seattle and um, moved containers around and then got into kind of uh, managing it um, from like a um, dispatcher point of view of, of controlling where the containers are going to go. Uh, my mom uh, was a waitress and uh, for the most part, stay at home mom and uh raised us kids. Uh, we were raised, I was baptized Catholic, raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, lived in Seattle, um, 
visited my um, first fire station um, in the neighborhood um, in Greenwood, Station 21, Seattle, uh, back in 1973, spring of 1973. And um, from that point on, it was dead set I was going to be a firefighter. Beautiful. And you mentioned you didn't have any firefighters in your family. Nope, not at all. The only connection to the fire department, um, and it wasn't even a family relation, was my grandparents didn't live too far away from where my parents lived. So whenever I would visit, um, there was a neighbor, uh, old retired Seattle fireman, um, actually went out on disability, um, John Riss, who was uh, like, I remember him as a as a young kid and I would go and visit him and he always had great stories. And, um, and he remember him talking to me when I was probably five, five, six years old. Cause he knew my interest in Seattle in, in the fire department. And that was it. I mean, I had no relation whatsoever of uh, firefighting in my family. Beautiful. Well, as you know, I, I talk a lot about, um, you know, the mental health side and, and early life sometimes factors into that. Was there anything in your childhood that you would categorize as traumatic or did you have a pretty ordinary upbringing up to that point? Yeah, I had a, yeah, I think I had an ordinary upbringing. Um, loving parents, my dad would do anything for us. Um, I think that was his biggest accomplishment is, how he got away from um, the lifestyle he had growing up and um, in his eyes became very successful by being married, um, having four boys and being able to give more than he received as a kid, making our lives better than the life that he was brought up in. Um, so I look at it as like I had a fairly normal upbringing um, when my grandmother was alive, um, she said that, um, probably the reason why I became who I am is because she raised me the first couple of years, um, because my mom was working, my dad was working, but, um, very close. I mean, we're Italian family. Uh, my last name is not Italian. My dad is Polish and, and, um, but my mom's side of the family, uh, last name Aroma. So, they're heavy Italian. So I was raised in an Italian kind of family where we did family dinners on Sundays, spaghetti and uh, all the uncles and everybody was there. And the, the louder, the better the, the, the family event. So I loved my childhood growing up. Uh, I, you know, I would, there are elements that I would love to go back and do again, just to have fun again. But I have no complaints, no trauma that I'm aware of. Beautiful. Well, then, and that's so important to hear because like, what we're seeing now with, with the unrest, you know, one of the elements is obviously parenting. You know, there's there's a seemingly lack of gratitude amongst several sections of society. And, you know, to you, you have these stories and they either went one of two ways. You had the alcoholic that raised the alcoholic or you had the alcoholic that raised the man or woman that said, I'm never going to drink because I see what it did to my parents. And it's the same with this. Obviously, you know, your dad owned his history and made sure that the buck stopped there and he was going to raise healthy kids. Yeah, I, I know. I will say my dad was, um, a recovering alcoholic. Um, I, I, um, I don't remember my dad drinking, um, heavily, but the stories my mom, uh, would tell me and, and my dad was, um, I guess you could say my dad was kind of like a, a thug. I know my mom would hate me for saying that, but my dad, um, he, he learned to live, 
uh, fighting and protecting himself. And so um, there were times, so I hear when he, when I was a toddler that that my dad would uh, do some heavy drinking and the wrong person would say something about my mom or family or whatever it was and my dad would take care of business. And um, But I, I do remember when um, he had to give up drinking. I mean, just basically he his life was struggling, you know, and as a kid, you don't recognize that. Um, and my mom basically gave him an ultimatum at some point and, uh, he gave up drinking cold Turkey and, um, he, he was a strong willed individual with a hard work ethic. And, um, and I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think that I struggle with drinking. I enjoy having, uh, drinks. I enjoy, you know, drinking wine and, and, uh, and, and can do that without having any problems. Um, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think that uh, I had a great uh, childhood. Beautiful. Well, then what about the sports side? Were you an athlete when you were a kid? Um, you and I have been together. So you, you know that I'm like five foot seven, five foot eight, if I want to stretch myself a little bit. Um, I, uh, was not, uh, I was not a built to be an athlete, but I did play sports. I played baseball um, all through my childhood. Um, uh, I played a little bit of football when I was younger and, you know, size didn't really matter. But as soon as I was getting into middle school and, and high school, um, there was a big separation between, uh, what I could do and what others could do. I wrestled for a number of years all the way through middle school. Um, so I participated in sports, but once I got to high school, it, it basically, I was really, um, uh, into music um, so I, I went the, the band route. So I'm the band geek, uh, in high school, but, um, you know, I, I look at a lot of the leadership stuff, um, which is where a lot of my interest is. And it, and I think it starts in my, is you know, in my time in, in understanding and being disciplined to learn to play music and be good at music. And, um, and I think that's where my journey in leadership went, but outside of that, um, I, um, into high school or outside of high school, you know, of course, uh, when softball was a thing for, for foot or for fire departments played softball, but outside of that, I was, I, w I wouldn't classify myself as an athlete. Beautiful. Well, when you think of, you know, like you said, the, the band, you think of the band geek, which is a very American expression, but <laughs> we don't have that in England. Um, <laughs> did you go to any high school reunions years later and people were, um, you know, blown away that the band geek now became a, a firefighter? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I went to my 10 year reunion. I went, uh, my school was, um, I don't know, 2,500 students. So in, you know, in relation to like Florida where you guys got four or 5,000 students in the school, 2,500 students was pretty big where I was from. So my graduating class was 800 I didn't know everybody in my, my class. Um, and I wasn't, you know, in the clicks. Um, but I went to my 10 year reunion. It was like most 10 year reunions where you just like, you know, everybody is just wants to show off what they're doing. And yeah, I was a firefighter at that point. Um, but I didn't have the connections. And then, um, my, I skipped the 20 and then the 30 year wasn't that long ago. And, uh, I ended up helping out, uh, to, put together the 30 year reunion. And so here I'm with the, 
the you know the the popular kids that were in high school and you know and, and they remembered me but um it, but it was one of those things like um wow wh- why weren't you part of our group you know back in high school and it's like well I was in the band come on I mean that's just I wasn't part of the uh, the cool group and uh, <laughs> but um but no no I don't think so I mean I I. I have relationships, uh, friendships with uh, a number of uh, the popular kids from high school and uh, keep in touch with a few of them. And, and uh, nobody's really surprised by that because they knew when I was in high school, I mean, we didn't have we didn't have um, the Votech, high school Votech stuff for firefighting when I was in school. But we had Explorer program. So I was in the Explorer program for firefighting, um, but wasn't affiliated with the, the school. But I think overall, a lot of the people knew that I had this interest in firefighting and and probably saw me as, you know, I was going to go off and be a firefighter some somewhere sometime. And, and that's what I had hoped, you know, um, when I was in high school. I just I enjoyed music um, and I wanted to be a firefighter. Nice. Yeah. The reason I asked is one of my friends who technically was supposed to be episode one on this, but we had a bunch of technical issues and he ended up being a little bit later. Um, he joined the military and, you know, he was always an athlete, you know, he was a cyclist and tie boxer for a while. And, uh, he told me that if I was asked to name the person least likely to become a firefighter and a stuntman, you would be it, James. So (laughs) that was how I was perceived. This kind of like blonde Afro having minute kid with really dry skin very meek and <laughs> awkward so <laughs> so yeah anyway that was my experience um all right so then well, you mentioned about this burning desire of becoming a fireman so kind of lead me through your journey into the academy um well I mean, i i'll i'm gonna go back to to 73 really quickly but um i remember just like it is yesterday visiting the firehouse and and when i walked in you know of course in the early 70s it was uh, generally speaking, all men, I don't think um, Seattle didn't have their first female firefighter until probably the eighties. But, um, I just remember four gigantic men greeting me at the door with my mom and we looked at the fire truck and it was just a single engine house and, um, and they got a call. And when they got the call and the bells went off and I remember the guy standing on, on the tailboard, they were riding tailboard back in those days, which I can say I did that before that was taken away. Um, or I should say before that was changed, cause I think it was a, a positive change. But, um, I remember him waving and saying goodbye, Robbie. And I was thinking, holy shit, I got to do that. Whatever it is, whatever they're doing, I got to do that. So there was the, there was that. And then there was, you know, of course in the seventies, the kids that were raised in the seventies, emergency was a huge hit and was a draw. And just all along, there was this desire to, and I know as cliche as it is, but and I think if you were to ask my mom, I'm always was the kid that wanted to help, wanted to help whoever. And um, so it just built. And then I get into high school and then the Explorer program. And that just kind of gives you more of a taste of of this is what the fire service is like. And you got to see got to see some calls and got to help clean up and you got to do go to go to training night. And um, so it was this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to be a firefighter, but I knew that I wasn't going to get hired until I got into my twenties. So I had to figure out what I was going to do between then, between high school and, and mid twenties. And I didn't know anything about 
resident programs or part paid programs. I grew up in the city where there wasn't a volunteer department. In fact, when we moved away from the city out to where we lived, where I went to high school, I remember visiting the fire station thinking I'm going to see firefighters and there was nobody at the firehouse. The fire truck was in there, but there was nobody there. That was a learning experience for me, um, being, you know, growing up in the city. But, um, so I had to figure out what I was going to do after high school and that, uh, I joined the Marine Corps and, um, was going to be a Marine for four years and, uh, do my time. And then when I get out, figured that would look good on a resume. It'd be good for learning discipline, you know, all the physical conditioning with it. And then I got hurt while at boot camp, and, um, I was going to need to be there for a much longer period of time to recover. And, um, and I just remember when the doc said, Hey, uh, you can stay here for another four to six more months and then you're going to start boot camp over again, or we can give you, you know, an honorable discharge, medical discharge and send you home and home sounded good. And so I came home and when I got home, I tried to figure out now what I'm going to do. And didn't realize, like I said, the resident program where you actually live like a resident doctor, you live in the fire station and you work as a firefighter. And that was going on, um, you know, right under my nose where I was living. And so I moved in to the resident program in 88 and uh, started doing that, went to the academy in 89, um, which was um, um, two, well, basically it was the time that I left for the academy Seattle Fire Department lost a firefighter in the Blackstock fire. And um, that was like a, bam, a punch in the face. And it was like the reality hit. Here, you know, the Blackstock fire was not far from where I was living. I knew the area. And uh, Matt Johnson was killed um, in this fire. And uh, and it was just like, you're really doing this. I mean, this is, this is serious serious shit that what we're going to be doing, you know, the fire department is serious. And so, um, went to the Academy, graduated out of the Academy, you know, got hired full time in, uh, 92, um, in the same department I was doing resident, uh, work in, uh, got promoted to Lieutenant in 97. So I got report, uh, promoted fairly early and about between about 94, 95 is when, do I want to be a paramedic or do I want to be a company officer? And, and I had a, a great company officer, Janet Jager, um, our first female in, in our department who ended up retiring now as a battalion chief, great friend. She was a mentor and she said, you, you shouldn't be a paramedic. You should be, you should be a company officer. You're a leader. You enjoy teaching. Um, that's what you're going to do the best at. And, uh, from that point on, I just was dead set on going to school, getting my education, um, got my associate's degree, became a company officer. Um, and then that takes us to this. I spent basically 20 years as a company officer uh, before making battalion chief. And um, before the battalion chief thing, it was getting my bachelor's degree. And, and this you know, in the fire service and I, um, I've done, uh, my own podcasts and, and I've had conversations before on some regarding higher education and the fire service. And, and I thought that it was extremely important. I still believe today it was important to get my bachelor's degree for moving up in, in the, um, in the ranks, but went off, got my bachelor's degree and, uh, got promoted in 2017 to battalion chief. 
And uh, yeah, that gets me to today. Beautiful. Well, a couple of things to unpack there. Firstly, the line of duty death right when you're going through school. We lost uh, Mikkel and Beg in Osceola on a training fire that went wrong right when I was in the academy. And then a Miami-Dade training event took another life. So I can actually completely relate with you where, you know, you have this facade, this Hollywood kind of image of the firefighter and then you learn, I mean, this wasn't even in, in, a, in a fire. These were both training incidents that the very thing that you're participating in right now, people are dying. And that, that definitely hit home a little bit like, okay, this is more than just putting on a cool looking uniform and, and as you said, trying to help people. Yeah. And, and what's, um, what's really interesting is later on, I can't remember the time. It must've been about 2006 or 2008. I was, I was an instructor at the state fire Academy where, um, generally any, every department was sending their firefighters to the state fire Academy, except for Seattle and, you know, the bigger departments had their own academies, but, and, um, I had the opportunity to meet Matt Johnson's son, Ben, and, uh, through friends, uh, Brian Root for the Seattle fire department. And, uh, Matt was, or I'm sorry, Ben was trying to get on the job with Seattle fire. And, uh, um, he ended up getting on the job. He works for the Seattle fire department today. And, uh, so I had this, this connection now again, you know, and got to talk to him about his dad and, and, um, he was, he was really, really young when his dad, uh, died, but, um, all the stories he heard from his mom. And then he gets to talk to all of the firefighters that worked with his dad and, and his dad was a phenomenal guy. You know, I didn't really, I, I mean, I didn't know his dad at all, of course, but I got to hear about who his dad was. And of course I had studied that fire and I had studied the, you know, that fire, the Blackstock fire changed the Seattle fire department and like our instant management system, um, that we see today, the the passports, uh, not everybody uses it because there's other systems out there, but the passports and all that stuff came about um, in Seattle as a result of the Blackstock fire. So there was this history here and then, you know, comes full circle where I end up becoming friends with uh, Matt's son and and get to see him get hired with the Seattle Fire Department and, and, and follow in his father's footsteps. It was, it was, you know, quite the experience. No, absolutely. Now, what what were the circumstances that took Matt's life? Uh, basically, what ended up happening is uh, um, Blackstock was a, a lumber yard um, kind of area uh, on the I don't want to say on the waterfront, but on the the train tracks and and near the water. Uh, major fire. It's the believed that it was an arson fire, and uh, he and his firefighter had stretched a line into the building and they got separated. And <clears throat> as they got separated, um, there really wasn't the accountability. Well, there wasn't any real uh, accountability system that the fire department was using at the time. And so they have a change of strategy. Everybody's coming out of the building. Um, they get this firefighter that is uh, um, overcome by heat exhaustion that gets out of the building as they change their strategy. And, uh, he's, he's almost unconscious and they, uh, transport him to, uh, our trauma center. And once he cools down and starts coming to, he starts talking about his company officer and how he didn't get out. And, um, so there's a couple issues. It's one, the, the, you know, the radios, not everybody had a radio at that time, uh, just the officer. 
what radio frequency they were on. They were on the wrong radio frequency uh, because they were on an earlier call, uh, I believe was the reasoning. Um, there was, you know, they had tried to call for help, but because they were on a different frequency and then this individual comes out, this firefighter comes out and was, you know, so incapacitated, couldn't even communicate. So they didn't even know that Matt was still in the building. And, um, and then once they realized it, uh, you know, obviously it was too late. And so, um, um, Matt, Matt ended up dying, but his, his death had changed and changed not only Seattle fire department, but our whole region, and, uh, and it really put IMS at that time. I mean, this is, this is in 89. It really put IMS, uh, on the forefront, at least in my region, the West coast, uh, for how we managed our incidents. And what about from the, uh, training point of view? So you're going through school in the eighties. Um, what are some of the things that have changed for the good in what you see in academies now? And are there any things that we got away from that you think maybe we should return to? <laughs> uh, well, one, when I came in the fire service and, uh, we weren't doing, uh, vertical ventilation, um, outside of the Seattle fire department did, but, you know, being an urban department, uh, that would be expected that they would have solid truck operations and would be doing roof ventilation. So when I went to the Academy, we didn't teach on any of that. They didn't, uh, you know, our forceful entry training was, this is what a Halligan type bar looks like. It wasn't even a Halligan bar. Uh, we didn't force doors. Uh, we didn't run saws. Um, you know, it was more theoretical and you read about it and you got to see it and you didn't get to do those things. Um, so today, I mean, a lot of that has changed. And in, and in my region, I can't speak for the entire nation, but, you know, we are fairly aggressive. We're West Coast, so we're fairly aggressive with uh, engine operations and, We've got, um, you know, Aaron Fields is probably one of the leading guys when it comes to engine company operations, and he works for the Seattle Fire Department. Um, so we've got very aggressive engine operations, and we have, you know, very aggressive truck operations. So uh, very regularly do we go to the roof and, and conduct roof operations. Um, so the change has been that I think we got better realizing that we needed to do you know, create more realistic training. So my, in the academies now that I teach, we are spending all that time on all of those skill sets in teaching them. We're incorporating a lot of what you all studies are to back up, um, what we're currently doing. So the discussion of, you know, do you put people on the roof or not? It's too dangerous up there. Um, is we back it up with, well, it's not really that dangerous what the data is showing us. And, um, and we need to teach them what to look for. And, and, uh, you know, that list goes on and on what we're not doing as well. What I remember from my Academy is, and it's always the, you know, back in my day, this is what we did, but the Academy was more disciplined in the fact that, you know, it was more like the military Academy, you know, having gone through boot camp. When I went to the fire academy, it was very similar to that, or almost it was it was similar, not very similar. It was similar to that. Today, we we have more of the adult learning environment, and I'm not against the adult learning environment, but um, we need to have more um, stress inoculation type training where they're put under more stress um, because when we get them out in the field, the stress is there, the stress is real, 
And so I wish we did more of that. Um, that'd be about the only thing that I, I would change. I'm not a big IFSTA fan and hopefully anybody that's listening to this that writes for IFSTA, don't be offended. But I, I think, you know, the stuff that's covered in the IFSTA is, is pretty poor to the reality of what's going on in, um, in the, uh, in the fire service today. So I would, I'd like to see us change our manuals to be a little bit more realistic. And of course the comeback would be, well, get on the committee and, and help write the manuals. Um, but, uh, that would, those are the things that I would like to see changed. Beautiful. This is a great perspective. I mean, I went through way, way later than you back in 03, 04. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and yeah, there was, it was kind of probably half and half. Like, of course, there was more awareness. Like I said, we had these line of duty deaths. So the safety element was definitely, you know, really, really taken seriously. But there was that, you know, inoculation side too. The very, very first day we had to do all these, these, uh, evolutions through these concrete pipes and you couldn't even freaking move and these mazes and, and they did. And I think we climbed the ladder too. So they, they basically weeded out people right from day one. And then they kept that, they kept that standard up. So when you did an evolution, you know, obviously you learn skills first, but when they put it all together, they are screaming at you. They are telling you the baby's, you know, the baby's mother's hanging out the window and there's pass alarms going off and smoke machines. And, and I think that why would you not create a, either the, 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 the parallel kind of environment if not even a little bit worse so just like a fighter if you've been through hell in the gym when you actually step in the ring a lot of times it's going to be easier than some of your training sessions yeah i and, and so anybody that's listening that knows me um that's teaching at the academy I'm, I'm just one of the instructors there but i think they're doing a fabulous job in fact we don't even teach at the state we don't even send our guys up to the state fire academy anymore our county is doing their own and we're doing, I think we're doing a way better job than what we were getting out of the state fire Academy. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want this to be misunderstood. We are doing a great job. I just think that we have to find a way that we incorporate more of what's being taught in the United States military and incorporate that into the fire service. It's not an issue of, I mean, we can take people that have the ability to be able to do it and make them better. You know, we can make them stronger. We need to, um, the stress inoculation, like what you see in the military boot camp, we need to do that and have those standards for firefighting because um, <laughs> our job is tough. And um, anybody can, I won't, not everybody can do it, I should say, but anybody that has the ability, um, the desire, uh, and, and the discipline can probably do our job. Um, if, if what I'm worried about is like today we, we do maybe one acquired structure fire for the academy, um, every academy, we need to do more realistic training in acquired structures. And those are coming lesser and lesser as we're going. And they're like, well, we want to do it in a container. You know, at least we're still using uh, class A fuels in the container, but there's a lot of p places that are using, you know, uh, natural gas, and it's all, you know, it's, it, it's just like being at, at Disneyland. That to me is not realistic. That is not preparing our firefighters for the job that they're going to do. We need to have realistic training. We would not want to teach Navy pilots to fly fighter jets in a computer. And then all of a sudden they say, well, here's your fighter jet. You're going to war. And they're, that's the first time they see the fighter jet. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster. So I just don't want to see the fire service go that way. Now, I don't know 
what the answer is. Um, but we've got to figure out a way to keep it as realistic as possible because lives, lives are at stake. I mean, the public's lives and, and injury and, and death of, of firefighters if we don't do it right. No, exactly. And I think that the two inter, interlinking, I guess is the word I'm looking for, um, you know, variables in this are, like you said, the, the realism in training, the intensity of training, but then that also reflects to the conditioning of the firefighter or the police officer, whatever it is. So what I'm seeing in my very short career, 14 years, is that, for example, our state test here in Florida used to be, you know, advancing a charge hose line and, and you, you did all the training at the academy. Now there's an option to do fire one online. And then of the big three, if I'm not mistaken, the charge, the hose line that you advance now is uncharged. You know, so when you're, when you're dumbing down these standards and people say, oh, it's for this group of people, th- whatever the reason, I don't, I don't think that is the case. I think they just want, you know, they have this, this false, uh, impression that if I make it easier, I'm going to get more people, which I think is completely wrong. If you make it more challenging, the right people are going to line up and, and want to take on that challenge and, and feel proud that they got through it. But if you are worried about people getting hurt because of a sensible realism in training, then you need to look at the people you're hiring and ask why they're getting hurt because you need, you know, there are so many resilient, fit, strong, you know, mobile men and women out there that are able to rise to the challenge of realism. But if you keep lowering the bar, you're actually creating a much more dangerous environment that's going to result in, in more death and injury. I completely agree. If <laughs> we we need to make conditioning uh, a priority, which in our academy they are doing, and it's getting better and better every time. Uh, we have had we have a pretty my department has a, a pretty rigorous uh, probation with a lot of testing, a lot of evaluations, um, a lot of drilling, and I think that when you get out of the academy. We just kind of started you off. We kind of lit you and, and gave you enough information so that you can you can be um, you can be part of the team. But it's through your probation that you're truly put to the test. And there has been a number of times um, I spent a lot of time in the training division um, before becoming a battalion, and then now as a battalion, I get probies, and so I have battalion uh, evaluations with my probies. And my last probie smaller, uh, firefighter. Um, he had everything that was great, uh, that you want out of, out of a, an individual to be a firefighter, but he was dealing with size and he was dealing with power and, uh, and he worked his ass off. He had, we provided him the, the conditioning they needed and the people to help get him there. Um, and being a smaller guy myself, you know, I, I spent time with him showing him that it's, it's more about technique than it is about power and that the smaller guy has to guy or gal has to use technique to their advantage. Whereas the more powerful person, they just use strength to get through whatever they're doing. But the problem is, is that the bigger, more powerful individual relies purely on strength and has very little technique. They're going to have an issue down the road. They're going to have an issue where they're going to need to use for energy, be it that it was a long fire or an injury or whatever it is, they're going to need to know technique. And what you're going to have being a smaller guy that understands technique better and you're going to learn, you're going to build on more power as your time in the fire service increases is you're going to be a better firefighter because of it. 
And he worked his ass off uh, to pass his probation. I love seeing that. But there's also others that um, they get to that point and they just can't do it. And and I've been very grateful, thankful for our department that uh, when somebody uh, is not cutting it and gets to the end of their probation, you know, they might get in a little bit of an extension to see if if the decision is right. But we've let them go. And we've not, um, you know, we've not taken on a, a 30 year problem uh, that somebody is is missing the mark. The the bar is set high where I work, and and I want it to stay there. And I I love seeing the success, you know, of of all of our individuals that who make it. Yeah, and I've seen that with my own eyes with with Anaheim, and I always refer to them like my first department, Hialeah. They were fantastic as well, but. Anaheim had no problem getting rid of us. So it was 365 days that you were shitting your pants that you were going to lose your job. And, you know, again, people look at skinnier guys and go, oh, it's easy for you. It's like, no, it's not. We're not strong. Like I've had to work my ass off to be fit enough and strong enough to be a firefighter. I'm tall, but that's it. I have no, you know, real muscle mass. So I had to work on that as well. But like you said, when you hold that standard, when you test, when, when, by the time we were done with a year and you mentioned roof ops, you know, we, we understood building construction. We understood how to cut, you know, on a regular residential pitch on, you know, pull a heat hole on, on a, a panelized roof, you know, understanding bowstring and all these different, different structures and, and the preset engine lays, you know, forward lay and reverse lay. And they had all these different names. It was a year of intense study. But once you graduated from that year and you, you know, you, like you said, you began now your day one of not being a probie. So you're just a full fledged rookie. Um, you know, you were accepted by the men and women at the department because you'd truly been through a crucible. And then those great firefighters became great engineers, became great captains, became great BCs. Conversely, the other place, the last place I worked at, there are people on that department. I know that if they have a structure fire, won't even put their mask on because there was no bar. And to me, that is completely unacceptable. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, can, I agree. I mean, we could talk about standards uh, all day. Um, I, I think the, you know, going back to what this question first started with, with what has changed in the fire service since I went to the academy and um, to some degree, I think we've, we've seen better conditioning for firefighters. I mean, essentially firefighters are, uh, professional athletes that are, are underpaid. And, um, I, I think the conditioning has gotten better, um, in the fire service. Uh, we're seeing it. Everybody's starting to realize the, uh, part of, you know, how it plays into having longevity in your career. And the other thing that's improved is, is mental health and, and our, our, um, you know, our mental well-being, and recognizing uh, that this is a very uh, tough job, and we get beat up not just physically but mentally, and and that is starting to improve more in the fire service as well. And we just for the first time uh, this year, uh, we addressed our recruits uh, with um, as as the peer support coordinator. Basically, what's the job like? And I and I know there are larger departments that do this all the time, but for my smaller eleven station department, this was the first time we did it. But we put that on the map. Uh, we've had a couple of firefighters over my career uh, take their lives, and um, and and I think we finally got to the point where, hey, we want to make sure that you understand truly what this job is going to do to you potentially. 
And we went as even as far as they had a um, uh, with the uh, significant others. They had a, a meeting with the chief and some of the other chief officers to explain this is who this is the department you're coming into and this is how tough the job can be. You know, this is what their first year is going to be like. And I love seeing that. I think that's going to be the next step moving forward is the physical side of things is getting better. Now we're focusing on, you know, the mental aspect of it. Absolutely. Well, for you personally, you know, you, you entered pretty young, you know, you didn't have a, you know, relatives telling you about some of the, the more challenging, mentally challenging side of the job. Did you have any kind of moment where you found yourself in a dark place? Uh, I, I don't want, I, I mean, I've had, I've had struggles, um, through my career and generally speaking, I would say there's maybe only been a couple times in my, um, oh, where am I at now? 30, some 30, 32 years that, um, that I've not wanted to be at work, but you know, all other times I've, I've got up in the morning and looked forward to the day and, and being at the firehouse and, and, uh, what challenges were ahead of us. But, um, there was, uh, early in my career, I was on a call where a police officer was shot and killed. And this actually turned out you know, when I was saying how we used to go to domestic violence calls um, without police or the police would just get there when they got there. But we would handle the call, generally speaking. This was like the first maybe within the first six months that we changed. There were, police had to get on scene before we did anything. And and uh, an officer lost his life um, and was shot. And, uh, and I was, so I was on that call and that was, that was difficult. Um, that was the first time that I dealt with personally and, you know, and had my hands on, um, a, a first responder that lost their life in, in the line of duty. Um, so that was, that was a, a rough patch for a, a little bit. My wife was, was great through it. Um, um, and I, I mean, I remember the call, uh, real vividly as well. And, and it's one of those things that I think that I packaged it well and that it, it's there and I get to remember it, but I don't think that it causes me a lot of stress. You know, I, I use it as, as an example when I'm, I'm talking to other firefighters about, you know, the potential that this job has and how this can, can really cause your hard drive in, in your brain to, to kind of go a little, you know, get fragmented a little bit. So, there was that moment. And then, um, when in the, you know, I was, I'm a, I'm a total student of the fire service. So I'm been a nerd and firefighting and, um, I'm an overachiever and I always do everything to the highest level. And so I had tested for battalion chief a number of years and was number one on the list every year. We just hadn't promoted anybody cause we were a younger department. And then, um, the fourth time, was a charm. Uh, I was number one on the list. We were promoting somebody. Um, you know, I, I had, I, you know, I felt like I covered all my bases and, uh, um, I, uh, again, like I said, I was number one. I, I've covered all my bases with my education, you know, my connections and everything that I've done. And, uh, um, a week before the, we were going to announce the promotion we'd already done chiefs interviews and everything. My father dies. And, um, 
you know, that was really difficult, uh, for my mom. Um, I'm more, you know, being a firefighter was more clinical. Um, it was, you know, uh, my dad had a hard life and, you know, when I look at the, the, how old he was and, and I try to get my mom to understand, like, you know, I really want him around too. I would love for him to see me get promoted and anticipate I'm going to be promoted. You know, there, we had not ever passed anybody up on a list before. And, uh, so I'm dealing with my mom and, uh, and then the next week I get a phone call from the fire chief and, uh, and I was like, okay, this will be the, the sunshine, you know, on this whole thing and the bright light. And, uh, he, he said, I, unfortunately I'm going to pass you up this time. And that was like my world stopped. And I just did not know how to handle the situation. One, it was blindsided and I didn't expect it, but I, I had no clue how to handle it. Um, of course, my wife didn't know how to handle it. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like in a really, really dark place, but I, I was pissed and I did not, this was like the first time I, I have no control. I don't have any control of the situation. There's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't do anything about it. And, um, so that took took a lot out of me, and I kind of became the individual that, uh, while I was excited to come to work, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't really connected the way that I was. I, I felt betrayed a little bit. Um, the individual that got promoted was was my good friend, and we had been doing college together, and uh, we did a mentoring uh, group together with firefighters that we ran, and we'd done a lot of things together, and. And I was very happy for him. Um, it was a really weird situation. And, uh, but, um, yeah, that was, that was tough. And outside of that, I mean, those are really the only two times in my career that I'm like, what do I do? How do I deal with this? And I've been very fortunate. I had my wife, uh, I've had a lot of close friends, uh, and family that get behind you. Um, you know, when all this was going on, I, a buddy from Austin, Texas, Zach King with the fools down there. He came up, uh, Brian Rude, a bunch of other friends, uh, you know, firefighting buddies, um, helped me get through that, you know, that moment of how did I get passed up and, and just move on and, and there's nothing I can do about it. So let's figure out what I can do moving forward. And what do you attribute to getting passed up? Well, I, I think the biggest thing was um, I I didn't foster. I mean, and we're looking at promotions, and this is probably the biggest lesson. Um, if if somebody's listening and, and they want to pull from this, is, is that a promotion is it's not just being qualified for the job; it's being trusted for, with the position as well. And and the higher you go, the harder, or I should say, that the more trust is needed. And I had ever, I had had every class. I, you know, I'd been in the training division. I had, um, bachelor's degree working on my master's degree. Um, I mean, you name it. I, I couldn't think of anything else. I'm, uh, I'd been number one on the list multiple times and, uh, what I lacked and it wasn't until afterwards is I did not foster the relationship with the one who's handing out the, the promotion. We had a change uh, from one chief to um, our, our other chief, next chief that came in, who came from the department. 
um, my relationship wasn't as strong with him. And then I never took the time to make sure the relationship was good. And, uh, so that was, that was quite the learning lesson. Now, it's always easier because now I've been promoted and so I can easily say, oh, I'm so glad I went through it. I really can say now with the lessons learned, everything, I wouldn't want it any other way. And my belief system, how I wanted to be a battalion chief didn't sit in line with the fire chief that was handing them out. And I had no problem saying, I disagree with you. This is how I'm going to do things or the reason why I want to do things. His approach was more, I need you to be more an administrator. And I was more like, no, I think my job as a battalion needs to be more, you know, rather than on the carpet, I've got one foot on the concrete and one foot on the carpet. I'm, I need to be connected with the men and women that I'm leading. It's important for me to know what they're doing. I want them to trust that they know that I have their best interest. I don't want to separation, you know, and be an administrator. Well, because I think that's one of the reasons is, um, is that I did not work on that. I did not realize that. And, um, and because of that, I think that cost me a promotion and, you know, and, and Ryan who got promoted, he was a, he was a qualified candidate. He was a great candidate. He's doing well. In fact, he's, he's my boss right now as a, as the deputy chief of operations. But that was the one thing that I lacked is, is developing the relationship uh, within the organization. You can't go in and just be qualified and start punching people in the face. Not that I was literally doing that, but if I'm not working on those relations, building trust, then there's a good chance that you're not going to get it. Now, playing devil's advocate, though, people like Jason Redman, who I had on the show, is a, a Navy SEAL with a phenomenal life story and such a great leadership book. He talks about fence leadership, and his philosophy is exactly what you said, you know, being on the fence between operations and administration and then be able to see the perspective from both sides. So now you gain that position. Do you still align with the fact that your original leadership style was probably more fitting to be a good chief when you're in that kind of intermediary spot between the men and women and you know the, the uh, administration side i i would say that uh i wouldn't change a thing that i did and if that meant that i had to give up a promotion because i believed in one system and the the chief believed in another um i would say that um what, what I tell others is, look, you're younger. You're going to be around a lot longer than those individuals. You're going to outwork them. If you truly believe in it, then stick with what your beliefs are and don't compromise your beliefs. So I wasn't doing anything wrong in my belief. Uh, it was just another way of looking at it. And, you know, um, James Mattis book, um, um, Call Sign Chaos, he talks about how he as, you know, as high up in the Marine Corps, um, he believed he was no different than the men and women that were in the infantry. And that is just a perspective on leadership that is different. And it's just a different perspective. I believe in it. Um, I've seen it work. Uh, I think it's the, the best way, but it's, it's not the only way of doing it. So, you know, while I, I could say in regards to my promotion, I didn't foster the relationship because then I didn't know truly what I was doing by having my own position. You know, maybe I should have spent more time talking with the fire chief at that time and, and trying to find some common ground. But 
you know what, if we're not going to find common ground, then he did the right thing by promoting somebody else that was going to fit his, his vision, you know, and what he believed. That's the right you have as, as being the boss or, you know, being the fire chief. Well, he's no longer around and now we have a new fire chief and we have new ops chiefs and, and, uh, and, and things change. Uh, I haven't changed my perspective on it. I still believe that the, the best company officers, um, the best battalion chiefs are those that connected. I mean, part of the reason why I still teach at the fire Academy is that I believe that the battalion chief, maybe not higher than the battalion chief, but at the battalion chief, I need to know what we are doing. I need to know what's the terminology I need to know. Cause things change. I need to know the fire ground tempo. I need to know what guys are doing, guys and gals are doing. How long does it take for them to throw ladders? So my priority in my day is when the crews, and I tell all of my companies, when you're training, let me know. And if I can fit it in, I'm going to. I'm going to go out and watch them train. I don't have to throw ladders with them, but I need to be there with them. I need to sweat with them. I need to, to watch them and support them. That is the That is the leadership style that I believe in. And I think it is a very successful one. So I guess to your question, I wouldn't have changed anything. And I believe that it was the right way. And, and, and that, if that meant that I had to, to be passed up, then that's why I believe that it was, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it any other way. Beautiful. And I love that. And I don't know if you heard my conversation with Jocko, the first one, but it was the same kind of thing. Like if you can project that, you know, as he said, the long game, that there's going to be a change then you know you you bite down your your mouth guard and you just you know right take the ride and eventually it's going to improve but conversely there are people out that i've had conversation with in my own personal journey was you're seeing the revolving door of the same kind of person then you can also ask yourself well these are these are my values this is what i believe fosters you know success in the fire service um you know the the highest possible outcome for the purple we people we serve maybe there's another department that would be a much better fit for me. Yeah. And, and, and hanging out and just waiting, playing the long game, as you said, and maybe that helps better the organization. I mean, I look at, uh, we're going to have some battalion promotions this next year, and we're going to have a ton of company officer promotions. I just look at the candidates that are jockeying, you know, that are in these spots that are getting ready to take these tests. And, and I'm really excited for our organization. I mean, there's, um, there's some really good candidates out there and, and to kind of tie to using this long game thing, um, um, Simon Sinek wrote a book, uh, the infinite game. And one of the things is competition is great and helping your partner. I mean, I, I go back to the, to, to the time that when we were testing for battalion and, and Ryan and I helped each other out and, um, you know, while I will say I wanted him to be successful just as I, but I wanted the job, right? And so there, that's not bad, but I helped him out and he helped me out. He got the job and I didn't, but eventually I did get the job. And, and the, being that the game's always changing and not being just for the, that moment. I mean, if I wanted the, that moment and if I spent the time with the fire chief, I could figure out exactly what he wanted and all I became was a yes man and, oh, he wants me to be on the carpet and wants me to be on my computer and wants me to do things. I could have done that. I could have done that easily. If he said, Rob, you're just too much. He did tell me that, but I didn't believe in it. So I decided to play my game. And it was, look, I mean, I, at the time I didn't realize it, but I decided to play my game. And afterwards I realized, well, I'm in for the long haul. And uh, hopefully one day I'll get promoted. And maybe, maybe it's not with this department, 
but maybe it will be somewhere else. But I didn't want to compromise the integrity that I believed in for a leader. And, uh, and, and not that, again, not that Ryan did anything different or did anything wrong. Um, he did a great job. It just, it wasn't the right fit for the chief at the time. And, uh, now again, like I said earlier, it's a lot easier saying it once you've been promoted, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about early in your life, being in the band, being in the music arena, that kind of helped foster your initial leadership. So how did that tie in and kind of, are there any lessons that you still use to this day? Well, I was, I um, was the drum major my senior year. So our band was, I don't know, a hundred people, hundred, hundred members. And, um, so that was kind of the beginning of learning to deal with personalities and, um, fostering relationships, which I didn't do very well for my battalion promotion. But, um, that was kind of the beginning of everything. Um, I, you know, I don't know if, if, if I've, I think the majority of the, the leadership lessons, you know, that was just the beginning, like I said, but the majority of them came from working with great people. Uh, Janet Jager, when she was a Lieutenant, I drove for her. And then I also worked with her as a company officer when she was my battalion chief. Um, Eric Andrews, who was, uh, he's now a re- retired ops chief, just a brilliant guy. Um, um, I, you know, got out, I was lucky to, to start teaching and got on national circuit. And, uh, so I got to meet a lot of people on the outside and, and developing relationships with other people. I mean, networking really, I think is what solidified my position or solidified how I believe the leader should be. And I, and, and I don't think that, you know, I know the band days did not help with that or the band days went, didn't really line me up in that way. It was having the opportunity to get out. Um, I owe, um, Ed Hatfield, who was, um, he, he led, he leads, um, Firetown training specialists and he gave me an opportunity to instruct with those guys. And so I got the opportunity that just was a place to start. And I was teaching outside of the area. And next thing you know, I'm teaching with brothers in battle, which is a, um, really, you know, phenomenal group of, of firefighters, men and women. And, um, and we teach all around. In fact, next month we'll be in Chicago teaching and, uh, and getting out and networking and seeing how other people do things and meeting other people and how they, you know, how they lead. That's really what that was the foundation for how I believe as a, as a leader, I wanted to believe be, you know, and, and, and listening to be that chief officer, that company officer, but be that chief officer when you promote up that you don't forget where you came from. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes people look at that as, well, you know, they're, they're, they're the fireman's chief. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, James Mattis, he, he believed in it. And, uh, you know, he led some huge forces during Iraq and, uh, and it was very successful for him. It's just, it's, it's a more of a servant style leadership and, you know, and that ties to college. When I went to got my bachelor's degree. I, I went to Grand Canyon University and uh, got it in emergency management, public um, public safety and emergency management with a, you know, a emphasis in servant leadership. And it was under the um, Ken Blanchard School of Business. So we studied a lot about servant leadership. So that all that ties together to how do you want to treat people? 
And, um, and I believe that the best way to treat people is treat them as your equal, serve them, help them, those that you are working with, and uh, don't disconnect yourself from them. Don't put yourself higher than them. Put yourself at the same level. And, and I, I think that's where I got the most of it. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned the uh, the Highwaymen Brothers in Battle, all these training organizations that have been a part of that you are getting a travel. Obviously, you're a lot of the conventions to uh, conferences, should I say. Um, how important is it, do you think? Well, let me rephrase that. Humility seems like such an important thing to me through my lens for departments, for individuals to to grow, to learn from each other, to understand that the way someone else does it might be better, whether it's within the fire service, whether it's nationally. What have you seen as far as similar men and women to yourself in different parts of the country and the importance of humility within them? I would say um, if you were to talk to Cody Trestrell, who is you know basically the, the ringleader of Brothers in Battle, um, when he asked if I would come and instruct with him, I'm like, why are you picking me? You know? Um, and his biggest thing was it's about family and it's how you treat people. And, uh, and he had, you know, we had been friends and we had trained together and, and, uh, and, and, and that's his number one priority in how he builds his, his team. And, uh, and that's key. I mean, that's humility totally. And that, um, I was, I, I had always thought that I was going to be a big city fireman. You know, I always thought I was going to get hired in Seattle fire department. I, and it never worked out. I'm working for the, when I got hired, it was a three station department. And, um, and I work for a, a small to medium sized suburban department, but how, how I, if I was a big city firefighter working in New York, I'd probably be the same way. And and some of the best, uh, Mike Champo and and uh, you know, guys that work in some of the bigger departments that spend time with, they didn't care where you worked. They cared that you loved the job. And and I think that has a lot to do with how you give um, an education or how you how you're sharing uh, the experiences because. Uh, I, I, uh, I've learned from some great people and they've been the best. And so I just look at it as treat people, right? Show them what you've learned. I tell them all the time. I mean, I, I've never had to cut this door this way on a real call, but I've, I've trained with a lot of people, uh, that have shown me this, you know, being honest. And, and, uh, I think it's the best way for, for those to learn. And, and I, it's the one thing that I love about brothers in battle is that, the humility of, of all the members is, is great. And we are a small family. You know, we do things when some of the training events, the wives, significant others come to the training events and we turn it into, you know, three or four days worth of training and a couple more days after that to uh, just be a part together as a family. Brilliant. Well, speaking of families, um, you mentioned a great story with your kind of introduction to the fools and then how that kind of cross-pollinate with FDNY. So I'd love to hear that. Um, so um, I'm I'm currently the education chair training trustee for Fools International. And I, I started the Fools um, in 2001, um, basically right, right as 9-11 is occurring. And uh, 
I was in a class that uh, this guy's like, who who here on the roof is is a fool and had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, he said, well, I tell you what, when we get done with training today, let's we're, I want if you were interested, you know, let's let's have a conversation. So there was a group of people around this individual, and he was explaining. He was from Sac City, uh, Captain Trost. And uh, that's how I learned about the Fools. And I get into the Fools. And then in 2001, after 9-11, a couple of probies at the time wanted to raise money for 9-11. And um, so they made up some shirts and some stickers. And, you know, we're thinking we'll make, you know, a few thousand dollars and, you know, we'll donate it. Well, it was super success. I mean, from the beginning to the end, uh, well, about a year, they raised uh, just shy of $200,000. Wow. Yeah, incredible. But in that first, um, in that first couple of months, we went to FDNY. We there was a group of uh, four of us that took a checkbook. We had I don't know forty thousand dollars in the account. Took a checkbook and we flew the red eye flight to go attend funerals. That was it. We just basically looked and like there's going to be a funeral on this day. We'll fly in early in the morning and we'll go to the wake and. And we're going to find the, uh, the widow and we're going to write her a check because you know that she's not going to get any money for the family. And, um, so we went to our first funeral and it was, you know, it was a quite a moving experience. And while we were at the wake, you know, we meet the family, meet the wife or the, the widow and give her a check. And she was very thankful. And so while we were there, a couple of FDNY guys were, where are you guys from? Oh, Snohomish Snohomish? Where's Snohomish at? And we're like, wow, you can say that word. That's a, it's an Indian word. You know that? And, uh, he's like, well, what firehouse are you guys staying at? So uh, we're, we're staying at the hotel here in Lincoln center. He's like, oh no, you got to come stay at our firehouse. And, and, uh, I, well, where is it at? And uh, they said, well, it's, it's in Washington Heights. I was like, oh, where's Washington Heights? Of course, you know, a couple guys from the West coast have no idea where Washington Heights is. It's Sounds basically fancy. It's Harlem. <laughs> it's Harlem. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it does sound fancy, doesn't it? Um, but uh, so, you know, it's a hundred year old fire station and firehouse, I should say. They don't, wouldn't call it a fire station. And uh, we, we basically stayed with them the the five, six days that we were there and they took us to funerals. And uh, we fostered a relationship with these these guys in the firehouse. And it was a uh, 34 truck. And, um, and, <laughs> What was really odd is that at that time, we went back multiple times and stayed at the same firehouse. And um, we, so we get to basically, you know, we flew them out, a group of firefighters flew them out and showed them what Seattle was. And, and it was just, we, we have relationships with these individuals still to the day. And uh, in 2008, now, so we've got to fast forward, I received, I was a recipient of the Fool's um, annual um, trainee of the year. And it was the Dana Hannon award. And when you look at, and I, and I, at that time, I didn't know who Dana Hannon was. And, uh, but Dana Hannon was assigned to truck 34 and he had been moved out of that assignment for nine 11. I think he was on engine 26, but here's coming full circle on that. I stayed in the firehouse in 2001 that Dana was out of and then I receive uh, a reward or a award for uh, being one of the best trainees for the Fools International and it's the Dana Hanna Award. I was like, wow, 
that's incredible. And, uh, I just, I just think, man, if there is, I want to meet Dana one day and, uh, I want to know who he really was. Cause I never really had a chance to, to meet him, but I feel connected to him. Amazing. It's crazy how the universe works. All right. Well, then you mentioned, you know, again, talking about the fools. Um, Walt Lewis is on here a couple of times. He's a, you know, he was one of my mentors in the fire academy. Actually, he taught me, um, how, tell me about the fools. And then, you know, how is that membership now? Are you seeing an increase in young men and women that are hungry to, to be better versions of themselves in the fire service? Um, well, obviously 9-11, well, first of all, the fool started in 1995, Walt Lewis and a bunch of other, uh, we'll say hooligans got together and, and, and they basically, what they wanted to do is they wanted to just, you know, keep the tradition alive, fire service tradition alive, remember fallen brothers and sisters and, uh, and, you know, take care of one another. And, and fast forward to 2001, you can imagine that, um, after 9-11, there was an increased popularity. Um, uh, the, the membership increased significantly. Uh, the ch- chapter I was a part of was here in Seattle called the Puget Sound Fools. And um, I want to say our membership was somewhere up in the 250 at the time in the early 2000s. And it has, it has dropped off, but um, more chapters have, have come about. It's just been an evolution. Um, there were a lot of coattail uh, members, I guess you could say, that joined. And then after, you know, a few years, while we say we'll never forget, you know, a number forgot and uh, they just got out. It wasn't their thing. Um, the fools get the a reputation of being a bunch of drinking firemen that like to party. It's, it's not that. You can don't have to be a part of the fools to find out that firefighters enjoy partaking in um, festivals like that and having a good time with one another. But um, so we've evolved as an organization. Um, we've got a focus. Um, in 2000, I don't know, 2013, 12 or 13, I got asked by um, uh, Mike Dugan, who FDNY uh, firefighter retired. He was the training trustee at the time and asked, Hey, the e-board would like to see, uh, or the founders, I should say, would like to see if you're interested in wanting to maybe take over the training trustee position. And Mike wanted to go on and do other things. And, and I, wow, I was honored. So I, I stepped in and, um, you know, Mike, if you know, Mike Dugan, he's got, he's a huge man. And I literally, I could, I could probably use, probably put my foot into his shoes with my shoes on. I mean, he had just a monster of a guy. But I literally jumped into his his, his uh, shoes and and started you know being the the focal point for training for Fools International. Um, and as I said, we've evolved and and we are now more about. Uh, we just did a podcast. Uh, the president just spoke to the membership and basically he was trying to remind the membership dealing with COVID is that you know while training is an important part of the fools and, and the reason training is an important part of the fools is that most that are fools are the cream of the crop. They're the ones that are really into the job, which then ties to they're usually training a lot. So they've got a lot to offer, but you know, president Flegel was basically saying, remember that we were here to take care of one another. We're here to make sure our brother and sister are, are well. 
um, and to to lift each other up. And uh, and and that's where you know where we're at right now as an organization is um, that's how we got aligned with uh, Rosecrans is is to to take care of one another and with uh, suicide being an issue and and with first responders um, we've gotten more involved. Um, I um, through through that I met Dan DeGrice and Dan DeGrice and I do um, a hump day hangout on fire engineering called straight talk. And, uh, I'm just kind of like the color commentary to Dan DeGrice. Dan is the, uh, mental health professional that, um, you know, uh, structures things and he bounces things off of me and I give my little two cents, but you know, I'm his color, color commentary guy, but, um, the fools have now spent our, our effort in helping our brother and sister out the wellness of our firefighter physically and mentally. Well, I know that's where we got to to talk finally face to face was the San Antonio, you know, um, Florian Symposium. I know the Fools were the hosting for there too. So, um, you know, what what has been your journey through understanding the importance of mental health, and then you yourself kind of pushing the peer support element? Um, yeah. So, um, obviously, I mean, I, I lost a really close friend, um, to suicide and, um, prior to, um, my arrival on end of the job, my department, another individual committed suicide. And, and I, I, right now I, when I talk to the recruits, I say in my time in, in the fire service and while I've, I've more connected maybe than, than majority of the people in my department because of my affiliations with the fools and with brothers in battle and all these other groups that I teach with, I go, I can't even, you know, um, there are more of my friends and people that I've taught with that have taken their own lives than I can count on two hands. And that's terrible. So, uh, so the connection is, um, this has become a, a, an issue in the fire service. Uh, our department uh, took on the peer support and, and I got put in the coordinator. I was open to take it. And I've met people like Dina Ali, which I think you've uh, you've had on your show. And um, I've met with people like that that have helped out uh, Dan DeGrice. Um, and, uh, you know, we've we've had issues in, in our organization where people have needed help. And it's been great to be able to be a part of that. Um I, I explained to the firefighters that um, as the fire service has evolved and, and we've become more diversified, if we go back to, to the 50s, you know, the firefighters were all one group, one breed. They were all men, all white men, and um, they were a certain style of, of, of men. And they, you know, they were all of the same group, same beliefs. And while that it works for being able to deal with how they dealt with things back in, in that time period, it was okay to go and come off a shift and go and go to the tavern and drink and get drunk, you know, drinking and driving wasn't an issue then. So you could try to drive home the cop, pull you over, he'd take you home. Um, it was okay to have these issues and take it out on your spouse uh, those things were okay. Um, sitting around the kitchen table and hashing things out in a bad call, that was the way that they dealt with things. Now, well, now we fast forward to the more diverse fire service today. Not that it's bad, but it's different. We isolate more. We, 
You know, I love the fact that we, I have my own, you know, we have individual rooms. It helps for sleeping, which is a whole nother topic that we could go on. But, um, dorm sleeping, uh, handling business at the kitchen table, that stuff has changed. You know, now we, we, we are not the group that we used to be. We don't have, um, as similar beliefs that we used to back in the early days. And so what does peer support do? Peer support is that connector trying to teach our firefighters to listen to one another, to be engaged with one another, to ask somebody, how was your five day or four day or whatever the time period off? How's your family? Tell me about your kids. You know, that's important. That's important. And I think that when we make those connections and when we get more personal, while we can have different beliefs, even in a, the, the political climate that we're in right now, and we understand one another, will be better. So um, I, I think that this is an important part of what the fools do. I think it's an important part of what I'm doing in the fire service with uh, peer support and the team that I have. And I think I'm hoping that it makes it better. Yeah, well, but so do I. And we just had a one-year anniversary of losing Emilio Rivera, who was a firefighter here in Marion County, who took his own life a year ago. And that's that's just it, is I think that we... It, there, there's an issue. There is absolutely an issue and, and no one can deny it. And I think sadly, these last few months certainly haven't helped. Like you said, they've added more stress to the responders work life. They've added more respect, stress when they come home. So what worries me is that we're going to see a ripple effect of the last few months. But Dana made a very good point where she said, you know, I hope one day we don't need peer support anymore. That we're just talking to each other. And I think that's something that we have to foster. If you have a station with individual dorms and I'd love to explore sleep with you in a moment that is the absolute gold standard for not waking people up for calls they don't need to be going to but that also requires diligence in making sure that you stay in the communal spaces as much as possible so that you can interact that you put your phones down that you engage with each other and you celebrate your differences the the diversity in the fire service is like the diversity in New York City it's a beautiful thing unless you stick yourselves in pigeon, you know, pigeon holes and then start arguing about, you know, the, the, the things that you see different in each other. So, you know, as people use the analogy, you want the, the giant guy to be on the sledgehammer trying to, you know, force entry. And you want the small person to go down the elevator shaft to squeeze through the hatch and actually access the people that are stuck. So we all have these places in, in, in the fire service. But we have to return. I think, you know, when we talked about the good old days, that's what I see. That fire, you know, firehouse table is absolutely the decompressing element of the fire station. And if you look at your own crew and you've got away from that and everyone scurries to their own little corner and is stuck to their social media, then we have to reverse engineer and go back to, you know, what our forefathers and four sisters did before we got all these distractions. Yeah, I, I, I'm, here's, a, here's a great example, and not even with the fire service. My wife and I, we live downtown Seattle, and the majority of people that I work with, like they can't believe that I live in downtown Seattle. Not because of, of, you know, of, of the civil unrest that's been going on the last six months or whatever it's been. And I've, been, I've lived downtown for a long time. It's just, man, doesn't all the people bug you? Doesn't, you know, you have no space? And I look at it as, and, and my wife and I, we love to travel. We travel internationally. And I think what you're talking about is it's a, it's a, it's an American problem. It's, it's how we live or how we're evolving as a society. And that, 
Um, when I grew up as a kid in Seattle, you knew all your neighbors. And when I grew up older and we moved out of the city, we knew our neighbors. They were just a little bit further apart because we grew, you know, we went to the suburbs. And when I moved and raised our kid, we knew everybody. Well, you know what? I live in the city and we know a lot of people in the city because we like to meet people and we like to see what their, you know, what their interests are. We, we like to have wine or whatever it is and, and find out and listen to people tell their story. We love that stuff. And I think we need more of that um, in, in America. And, I, and you're, you're international, so you know what it's like to be in other countries. And it, it's like in other countries, the way we do things in America, and I'm not saying it's, it, it's, it's I don't want to say it's wrong. It's just another way of doing it. But I think we're missing out on the opportunity to understand one another. We don't like connecting like we used to. I don't know why that is. But America has now become more disconnected, not just in the last six months. This has been something that's been going on for a long time. And um, I intended to raise our kid and I intend to raise our granddaughters to be open, to listen and to connect with people, understand another lifestyle. Because that's what truly – I mean that's what makes me grateful for the things that I have. makes me grateful to be an American – uh, and the things that we have, but I, I hate seeing some of the negative side of it is, you know, now we're becoming so siloed and we don't want to know our neighbors, you know, because of the, whatever is going on or the political position or whatever it is. Yeah, no, exactly. And again, it goes back to humility. Like we're talking about with leadership and I think that that's just it. There is, you know, since I've been here as an immigrant, I've seen this blind America as the greatest country in the world. And a, that's kind of obnoxious because every country is going to have national pride. But B, if you're in a fire department that never trains and just stands around saying we're the greatest, at some point, someone's going to point out that you're not. If you're not prepared to put the work in, if you're not prepared to be humble, to take ideas from other departments or other countries, then you're going to fall behind. And one day you're not going to be the best in education, in, in defense, in health, in, you know, prison system, policy, whatever it is. And I think that's what I see, not just here in the UK as well, you know, in some of uh, the more, uh, uh, you know, high profile Western countries is that sometimes we're just fucking arrogant and we need to get over ourselves and understand that other cultures there's a beauty to them, but also there are lessons to be learned. And if you're too busy beating your chest saying you're the best in the world, you're going to fall so far behind. And then one day, you know, in my opinion, find yourself where we are now, where people are fighting over fucking masks, <laughs> you know? So, you know, whether you put it in a, in a, a national um, example or a fire department example, to have a good fire department, you need to foster good leaders. You need a good, um, you know, hiring standard that the, the bar is set high. Then you have a, a tough, probation and you maintain that standards and you're always investing in your department and i think that's it is that people need to realize they have to invest in the country they have to build community they have to step outside the front door look around instead of saying i've got mine look around and say who can i help amen and i you know what i get tired of is that i don't want to say america was great and uh I, it's like we always look back to World War II. World War II. Most of those individuals that were around during that time period have died, and we still hang on to that. And 
there's been some significant challenges between that period and where we're at today. And we are a different world. We're a different nation as well. But we can't hang on to or be the coattail riders of of what went on in the, you know, and some say the greatest generation. And uh, we we need to be our own great generation. Millennials, X Gen, I Gen, whatever it is. But it has to involve people and being connected with people. We cannot, uh, you know, cannot isolate ourselves, disconnect, and and not want be a part of a community. Ultimately, those, I mean, it goes back to like the tribal mentality. The tribe will survive. Individuals will not. Absolutely. And as I said, I think tribal is seen as negative. You know, I grew up, for example, watching a lot of you know, British people be very passionate about football, then some minorities again, you know, fighting over their teams, murdering over their teams, you know, but that's not tribalism. That's, you know, being a psychotic maniac, you know, it's a very different thing. But yeah, being proud of something, being part of something and, you know, understanding that to give something value, you have to give it worth, you know, and if you have a nation where men and women are sleeping under bridges, and, you know, as we see, are dropping dead in their 50s because of obesity, because of the, the filthy food that we're eating. There is so much room for improvement. So rather than arguing over trite politics, be part of the push that, of something that's really going to make a difference in this country. You know, whether it's mental health, physical health, you know, the environment, whatever it is, but something that you can tangibly change. And to translate for everybody, when he said football, he meant soccer and American. <laughs> Not throwball. That's a simple football. translation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, I think that's a good place to kind of take a little little tangent again. So, um, I would the closing questions I love to do. The first one I always open with is: Is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today, or something completely different. Uh, yeah. The last right now, I'm rereading um, "Why We Sleep." Um, by Matthew Walker. And, uh, I would always say to all my brothers and sisters in first responders in military is like, that's a great book. Read it, actually make it your textbook and, uh, get through it, understand it. Um, there's a lot that, uh, we don't understand as individuals uh, about our sleep and, and the benefits of it. And, uh, so, uh, I'm rereading it for the third time, but the last book that I read that I would want to recommend is, uh, it's called Top Gun by Dan Pedersen. And it's a book on, Dan was basically the one that put together the top, the top gun program for, uh, the naval fighter pilots. And that's the story of why, uh, I don't want to ruin it, but, um, basically there was a change from how they engaged uh, as fighter pilots from World War II to Vietnam. And they started to see the problems that were associated with it. And uh, then they went out and um, while the military had said there would be no more, they wouldn't allow for any type of um, uh, dogfighting or simulated dogfighting, a group of pilots would uh, meet each other in a bar, you know, and say, meet me at uh, this longitude latitude. And there was an area out over the Pacific ocean and they would uh, dogfight um, and basically chase one another. And, and they learn through that. So it's kind of like a fight club. They learn through that, 
maneuvers that needed to be uh, created and, and a philosophy that needed to change. And so it's um, Dan's basically how they created Top Gun, why they created Top Gun, the mindset of of Top Gun, uh, making these these um, top notch fighter pilots, and uh, and how it became. So it's not like it was in the movies, but uh, it's a great book on leadership and and on developing and on mindset. Beautiful. First first rule of Flight Club: Don't talk about Flight Club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. For the most part, that's what he said. Just like. Uh, you just don't talk about it. But it's an, it's a great book. Uh, you can get it on audio as well. So uh, I've got the book and I've listened to it on audio. And um, it's it's I, I highly recommend it for, for those that are looking for some type of um, leadership book. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned uh, Why We Sleep. Uh, Dr. Walker is someone I still am trying to get on. He's very, very hard to get hold of. Um, from your perspective, having 30 plus years in the fire service, what is your... Um, philosophy now on sleep and, and, you know, how can we do it better in our profession? Uh, I used to be the company officer <clears throat> that would uh, be the last one to bed and the first one to rise. Uh, I prided myself on that. Um, I always said, you know, my dad always said this, uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And, um, and yeah, my dad's no longer here and he died at a you know, fairly young age. And, uh, he was, he was a workaholic and, and, um, when, when my dad died, I started seeing the writing on the wall there was a lot of, of, uh, you know, like things I was, uh, I'm, I am a workaholic. I enjoy my work. Uh, I work hard to have family life balance and work life balance, I should say. Um, but, um, what I did in my early days and what I do now is totally different. I'm now, um, I'm fortunate as a battalion chief, I usually get to sleep most of the nights and, uh, but I try to get anywhere between, um, eight, eight and a half hours of sleep every night. Um, I use a routine to my sleep, which is important as you all know. Um, I, uh, use supplements for my sleep. I do uh, sleep teas. I have, uh, doc parsley's, um, remedy for sleep, which is great. Um, I use those to help. So I, I kind of use it more as a recovery sleep. So when I'm at work, I don't use that stuff. Um, I've seen, I use a, my Apple watch. I, I have a sleep app and I keep track of my sleep. And, uh, yeah, I've, I, I truly believe that our well being is, is rooted. The foundation of our well being is in our ability to be able to sleep. And, and in the book, it covers all of that stuff. And plus, you know, why we have troubles as we're getting older. Now me in my early fifties. Um, I, I think I've done a pretty good job of, of being able to manage my sleep well, but we do see a lot of people as they get older, they have a hard time sleeping. And in the book, it covers why we have a trouble sleeping as we get older. And, uh, so I think it's, uh, I'm, I am 180 degrees opposite of where I was 10 years ago. Beautiful. Well, again, to, to kind of be a uh, devil's advocate, to the the naysayers are like well it costs too much you know blah 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 um are you guys on a 56 work week there no i we're on a four platoon and it, i you know i was i knew you were going to probably ask coming <laughs> out. i think we're a i think we're a 42 hour work week or a 43 hour work week beautiful um but yeah you, you know the the best would be to be one on uh three off 
we work a one-on, one-off, one-on, five-off. Um, but and it's not just that. I mean, there's there's a lot of fire departments uh, that are working the the 56-hour work week, the the modified Detroit, which is where we were before. Um, but where we have the most problems is that as our our sleep hygiene in the firehouse is is terrible, and um, our behavior is terrible. Um, we could have you know we have individual rooms, and and I only get woken when it's a call for me. Uh, we have individual, you know, bedroom alerting and, but you know, our bedrooms are in the wrong place. Uh, they're loud when they're leaving. Uh, they're loud when they come back uh, that, that shift change, you know, we shift changes at eight o'clock. Most of us get up about six 30, but you know, when the probies are in, you know, they don't realize it. Uh, so they come in early, like at six and they're banging around and it's just, it's just our design to the fire stations are not where they should be. I mean, um, newer built firehouses are better, but, uh, we need to put more of an emphasis on, on our sleep hygiene. And again, it's in, 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 in Matthew's book, but, um, the other issue is, is I, I think, you know, if I were ever to become the ops chief, I'll probably be the first one to say, I don't want to mandate it, but just like PT, we highly encourage you to take a nap during the day. And you can put it wherever you want it, but um, I think that uh, we're getting busier as an organization. Um, fire department's not going to get go on less calls; they're going to go on more calls. So I think we need to have a recovery period. So that's what I'd like to see changed. Beautiful. Well, just from you know one of the few departments that that went from a fifty-six to a forty-two, how was that received by the membership? Well, it, it was received well because <laughs> we went from one on, one off, one on, one off, one on, four off to, you know, one on two, one on, one off, one on five off. So they're like, wow, that's great. Um, they, I mean, of course they like it. I mean, generally the general population, the membership in the organization, they, that's a great benefit. They, they don't look at it. I think generally speaking, firefighters don't look at it as a time to recover I mean, because firefighters then you know, the more time they have off, the more time that they can go and build houses or they can go and do these other things. And, and, um, and I, and I get the reason why, um, back in the seventies, firefighters didn't make what we make today. And, and, uh, and I'm speaking from the West coast. So I know that, you know, across the nation, everybody gets paid differently, but I get paid, uh, fairly well, um, to do my job. And, and, and again, this is a, this is a cancer of, of America is like, we are so materialistic that if we have something, we want more of it and just keep on taking more of it. You know, if you have a 3000 square foot home and three kids and, and you and your wife, it's not big enough. We need a bigger house. And I'm like, well, go to another country and learn. I mean, I live in a thousand square foot condo, uh, with my wife, that's plenty of room, but it's just how America is. So we work our asses off. We'll work extra jobs and, um, and it's beating us up. So it's well liked. I will say, and I know you've talked about this. Um, we've, we've merged with other departments and they, they came off the 48 hour 4896 and, uh, and they weren't happy about it. They liked the 4896 because they could live further away and then just come in for two days and then, then go back home. And, um, but once they, you know, it's, it's just, it's just different and, uh, we allow for shift exchanges. So trades, so, so individuals can still do that. 
Um, I'm, you know, my wife and our, my kid and his wife and our granddaughters live in Vegas and we, in fact, my wife's down there right now and, and I was just down there over my, my five days off and we're looking at moving down there and, and I'm still going to be in the fire department. So I'll end up doing some modification of that so I can, you know, pull that off. But, um, our sleep is extremely important and, uh, and we, as a union, they've negotiated it so we have it, but we don't use it for what it's for, and that's recovery. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. It's, it's a great perspective because you're one of the few people that I know that have been, you know, the big jump from the 56 all the way to the 42. And I know those guys. I know the guys that live out of state. You know, I almost did it myself, commuting from Florida to California way, way back in the day, um, initially at least. But, you know, put it in another uh scenario where lives are at stake the airline pilot oh, i'm gonna fly transatlantic you know what I've, I've done a shift change with steve so i'm gonna fly the plane back as well without any sleep would you want to sit on that plane absolutely not you know so we have to frame it in a way that people understand that these longer shifts are going to make us worse at our job increase the likelihood of an intersection wreck pushing the wrong meds missing someone on a primary search falling off a roof all these things and then obviously the chronic disease element too, like you're increasing your chances of mental ill health, cancer, heart disease, obesity, testosterone in the toilet. So I think when the wellness is truly understandable, we're not there yet. We're still having to educate people. And I'm only six years deep into sleep medicine myself. But when people truly understand that, I think it's going to reframe it. And you mentioned about building houses. I'm not opposed to people you know, earning it. If you want to have that lifted truck or whatever it is, those above and beyond things, and you want to earn the extra money, that's fine. But you've got to understand that hanging drywall for seven hours is different than taking an overnight ER shift. Like if you go sleep well after working with your hands for eight hours, I'm all for it. But if you're up all night because you took another shift, that's a completely different animal. Yeah. I mean, again, go back to math, Matt's book and he talks about uh, hours of awake and, and, um, and, and that it's basically you're, you're legally drunk. And, and I, what I tell the recruits and what I try to, you know, try to encourage other firefighters to be more sleep aware is that, you know, would you want a doctor doing heart surgery on you if they've been up 18, 20 hours? And then it's like, absolutely not. Well, then why would you think that it would be okay for you to be driving a million dollar, 60,000 pound, you know, or, you know, um, truck down the road. And, and, uh, it's just, it's, 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 it's just difficult to get people to understand it. And hopefully one day it'll become part of the everyday of the fire service. Absolutely. Well, with people like you talking about it at your chief level, I think that's just it. We need leaders to, to educate themselves, understand and be part of the change. Not this sleep when I'm dead, rub some dirt in it bullshit that a lot of us were raised on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, um, moving to the next question: Is there a movie and/or a documentary that you love? Yeah, I just um, I just flew home, and so uh, my kid actually said, "Dad, you got to watch this movie on Netflix. It's called The uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven. And uh, so I watched it, and it was awesome. And it's fitting for uh, fitting for today. I'll just say that uh, I think it just came out literally this last week on Netflix. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's the, I forget his name, the guy that plays Borat is uh, one of the characters in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though it's not a comedy, I know this one's serious. Um, all right, so the next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were talking about, um, well, I want, you, Math, I want you to get Matthew Walker on there. Uh, it would be nice to have, have him on the show. But um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Donnie Hutchinson, and he does a, um, he does a, a work balance uh, thing. He's written a book. Um, Dan DeGrice and I had him on our show, um, uh, Straight Talk, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And, uh, he's got, like I said, he's got a book and, and I think he would be perfect for what you're talking about or what, you know, what the, what you're trying to get at in your audience. The other one would be, um, Mike and Ann Galliano and it's spelled like Gagliano and, uh, Mike is a mentor, a retired Seattle captain. Um, him and his wife wrote a book. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. It has to do with marriage, but wrote a book. My wife and I wrote in it. Um, uh, an excerpt, uh, basically a firefighter, um, marriage and the struggles of firefighter marriage. And so, um, Anne had her own, uh, column with fire engineering and, and Mike's written uh, another book and then together they wrote this book and, and it's all about just, um, fostering good, good marriage, uh, while being a firefighter. You know, it's funny. We were arranging an interview and it's just hit me. I don't know what we did. I have to go back and figure out why that ground to a halt. It was probably COVID, but we were talking to each other about doing that. So I'm going to have to follow up on that. Brilliant. All right. Yeah, they, would, they would be good. I've had uh, Mike and Ann on my podcast um, once before. And um, yeah, they hit on a lot of of the seriousness of, you know, it's a challenge being married to a firefighter and, and, uh, understanding it. And they talk about, um, they talk about, uh, line of duty deaths and, you know, and it's, it's, it's really good. It's, it, I think they would do a great job for, for the well being of, of first responders. Beautiful. Well, I will make sure I, you know, follow up on that then. Um, so next question, what do you do to decompress? I, uh, I've been trying to get into mindfulness, you know, so, um, to tie into sleep, um, working harder at trying to be in the present moment. Um, usually do it before bed. So it makes my sleep a little bit better, but if I'm stressed at work, just, uh, go into my room and, and, uh, practice a little bit of mindfulness. Um, my wife and I, we love to travel. And so that's kind of like my separation away from work. I don't, typically have a lot of stress related to home life. Um, so we do a lot of travel. COVID has is, is changed that, so we're not traveling like we used to. And uh, music. I love I love listening to music, and um, for the most part, all genres except for rap. I don't think rap's a genre. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I love listening to music, and uh, those, those are the big three things. My wife and I, we walk um, – almost, I don't want to say every day, but we walk most days together and, and being in Seattle, it's a little harder during the winter, but, um, those are the things that I do. Beautiful. And with the mindfulness, do you use an app? Is there any, any certain kind of, uh, practice that you do? No, I know that, uh, Dina, she recommends, um, 
Is it Headspace? Oh, it's Headspace. I think is the one she's using. There's there's like three of them out there. I don't use any of the apps um, just because I'm just now getting into it and I'm trying to just get myself into a routine and then maybe the next level I will do is get more into the app. But um, my department also used a um, – I have this uh, resiliency. It's tied through – I can't remember the company, but um, they paid for uh, a few of us to try it out and, and basically reconnect. You connect online and it asks you a few questions and it talks to you about a few things, you know, and it's, it's interactive, but it's a resiliency um, builder. And uh, I use that at work every once in a while when I remember to go in and uh, reconnect. And, and that's usually it says, Rob, you've been gone for a long time. You okay? I start with <laughs> guilt. Uh, that sounds like a good start. <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> uh, where have you been? Yeah. Um, but you know, my mindfulness mostly is just trying to be present at the moment and just, uh, just learning. I, I think the biggest thing is, is I'm learning to be able to, um, take thoughts that come in, you know, because I'm, I'm bomb, my mind just bombards me with think of this, you got this podcast, or you're going to be meeting with James and all these things. It's just like being able to have the discipline to push it aside and just be in the moment and then be able to grasp that when I'm done with being in the moment and coming back to it. So that's what I'm probably working the most on right now is just being able to organize that way. Beautiful. All right. Well, you mentioned the podcast. So tell, tell people about which training groups you're with and then also the podcast that you do. Um, uh, I train right now. I'm with Brothers in Battle and um, uh, I work with another group that that, that teaches called the Highwaymen. Uh, it's a bunch of firefighters. Well, first of all, Brothers in Battle are firefighters from all around uh, the nation. We got a couple of uh, San Francisco guys. Um Portland guys, Seattle guys, um, uh, Idaho guys, uh, Ohio. I mean, we're all over the place, Colorado. Um, and then uh, the Highwaymen is a, a group of us. It kind of came off of a few of us that are part of the Roof Pervs. You've had uh, James Johnson on. He's, a, he's one of the Roof Pervs and is a, a group that, you know, we really get into building construction and, um, so that led into the highwaymen, which we teach, uh, um, roof operations, commercial ventilation operations, uh, some LA city guys, um, guys from, uh, Georgia area, myself and, and which is great. Um, I'm also with the fools of course, and we have a podcast that uh, goes out for fools international. It's on our Facebook page. Anybody can listen to it. And then a part of that. We're also tied to fire engineering and do uh, blog talk radio, Fools blog talk radio. And I do take care of that as part of my role as the education training trustee is uh, handle all of the podcast stuff. And uh, yeah, I do straight talk with uh, Dan DeGrice on Hump Day Hangouts, fire engineering. That keeps me busy and still trying to figure out if I can get this master's degree done all at the same time. Yeah, very busy. grandpa. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I got to join you guys one time on the, the Hyundai Hangar. It was it was awesome just to be, you know, alongside these greats of the fire service and just, you know, offer my very, very lowbrow opinion on some things. <laughs> I think what was great is that, you know, you being a podcast, it's a, it's a voice on the other side of the radio. We had you on video and uh, the tables were turned, so it was great to have you on the show. We enjoyed it. Dan and I thoroughly enjoyed having you on, and 
and your perspective. And, you know, like with everything, it's just being able to connect with a bunch of different people and hearing, you know, how their lives have been, you know, what's, what's good in their life, what they've worked on. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from just sitting and listening to other people. Absolutely, which has definitely been the theme of this discussion today. So for people listening, you know, if they want to reach out to you specifically, what are the best routes? Um, Rob Fisher, no C and Fisher, 7-2. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I am on Twitter. My wife's more of a tweeter than I am, but uh, I am on Twitter. And uh, robfisher72 at gmail.com and uh, education at foolsinternational.com. Those are my email addresses. Beautiful. Well, Rob, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, it was so great talking to you at the uh, Rosecrans Symposium. So you can hear my dog in the background about to murder someone. Um, but, you know, and then, and then getting to come on to the, uh, the podcast with you guys. But, you know, you are, you know, one of the leaders, one of the revered people. I mean, that in a, you know, a humble way, of course. Um, but who's walking the walk? You were there at Rosecrans alongside those men and women that actually showed that they were vested in, in their people, whether they were firefighters, whether they were ranking officers. But, um, it's been a great conversation. There's been so much the thing that people can take away from this. So I just want to say thank you for being so generous with two hours of conversation. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for the kind words. And I just want to say, James, <clears throat> just thank you for what you do. Um, putting the wellness of our first responders physically and, you know, our mental side of things um, up front and uh, doing whatever we can to help improve our men and women that are doing the jobs that we do. And, and uh, I think it's a better place. We've gotten, we've made a lot of improvement because of uh, your show and I enjoy listening and I was privileged to be on, on your show with you today. 